pray and we'll get going here. Lord, we just thank you and praise you for another Sunday morning, uh, opportunity to be encouraged by one another, encouraged in your word, uh, encouraged by your spirit, Lord, and an opportunity to uh, worship you in all these things. Um, Lord, you are a great and sovereign king, and we realize that all the good and all the bad that come into our lives over this last week, and that we'll see even that we that are unknown as we proceed through the following week. Lord, all come from your hand and are used uh, for your glory. And for that, we give you praise, Lord. Uh, it is a, uh, The hard things remind us of uh, the need to pursue you for eternity is so much longer than life on this earth, Lord. And the good things remind us of not only the good that is to come, but the way you have shepherded your people uh, now for millennia. We pray that uh, we would bear these things in mind as we turn to your word. In your son's name, amen. So we started Joseph last time and we'll continue with Joseph. So we're in Genesis 37. And uh, just by way of review, I'm actually just going to read through those first 11 verses. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to them, Are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these sayings in his mind. So in this introduction, we have the relationship between Joseph and his father, and that's uh, different than the relationship between Jacob and the rest of his sons. And just by way of reminder there in verse 3, Israel is another name that God has given Jacob, the one who contends with God, related to the episode where he wrestled with God. And so we see this picture, and, and that is kind of important, where we see in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph, so we have the one that contends with God is the one who has a special relationship with Joseph. And Joseph has a relationship with Israel as one who is bringing a message from God. And we saw that last time, that this was these dreams weren't just a premonition he had, that this was actually God prophesying through Joseph of what the future held for the people of Israel. He was prophesying to Israel through Joseph, the favored son. These dreams, this prophecy was declaring new revelation of God to his people. And that's kind of important because that's what prophets do. In fact, now, uh, not to jump down that rabbit hole too far, but even now, the, the prophecy, I would say, has not changed what that term means. If you say you're a prophet in the New Testament, then that prophecy and the role of prophecy is still declaring unknown mysteries of God to people that are now being made clear by God. And that's what Joseph is basically acting as here, is a, is a prophet of God to his people. And we see the reaction of the people of God being the Israelites, those who are of Israel, Jacob, those who are his sons that will eventually bring about this nation of Israel 
and their reaction to prophecy. Now, those of you who are students of the Bible and read the Bible, um, and I can't emphasize enough the importance of you being in the Bible every day and reading through the Bible in some systematic form. So um, I can't keep track of things real well um, as far as I have so much going on. I just start at the beginning and work my way through having some system. Jay's going through it right now in a timeline fashion. So you've had somebody break it down. So you're reading in chronological order, correct? Yeah. And so, but you start getting these things in your mind and you start connecting the dots and you start realizing that in this situation, you have Joseph prophesying to the people of God. And what happens when someone prophesies to the people of God moving forward? Yeah, they listen and they do everything God has told them to do, right? No. What happens to prophets? They get killed. <laughs> this, is the, this is the prototype of what happens when God gives someone a message to go and tell his people. Genesis 37 is the prototype of that. Um, Jesus himself, and we've covered this uh, in our series on Matthew. If you turn to Matthew 13... Verses 54, well, 53 through 57, we have Jesus returning to Nazareth. Kind of his hometown, right? Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? And they are not all, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without, without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So we see this picture that Jesus gives in his own life and that he states is that even among his own people, their main problem was that he's one of them and they knew him and they weren't impressed with him before he starts coming and he starts teaching. The miracles are amazing. The teaching is amazing, but they can't get past who this man is. He's the son of Mary and we have all his brothers and sisters here. He is nobody special. Same thing that we saw in Joseph in 37. His brothers look and go, this is our little brother Joseph, who's a snot-nosed brat. The dad looks better than anybody else. We are not going to listen to the word of the Lord preached through this man. And then it's not surprising that then in Matthew 14, 1 through 12, we're now given the story of John the Baptist's death. Well, who's the greatest prophet of them all? John the Baptist. Yeah. He's he's Elijah Elijah in the Elijah the second. I would say the second coming of Elijah but that's not correct. He's 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 the spirit of Elijah, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament and and John is even greater than him. And so there's no surprise here that Jesus says, "Oh, by the way, prophets aren't even loved in their own city." And their own people don't like them. And the greatest prophet of them all has come. And look what happened to him. You beheaded him. He's done. Now Herod is the one who beheaded him. But John had problems with all the Jews. They had problems with John and who he was and what he was saying. So we see that example in the New Testament of the ultimate prophet and his treatment by the people as well. And then staying in Matthew, Matthew 21. And again, as, as, you, as you feed yourself from the word and, and you graze upon it, these things should start coming together for you. Let's look at this parable of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 21, verses 33 through 40. Listen to another parable. 
There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to them, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Don't want to unpack that a whole lot, but if your mind jumped from Matthew 21 to Genesis 37, you're probably somewhere in the right boat. We have the vine, the, the owner of the vineyard sending his own son, and they said, hey, let's kill him and take the inheritance. Genesis 37. Man comes with the word of the Lord, tells the people this is what God says. They don't like him because he's the one who's been promised by his father to lead all of them. He's the one who's going to receive the birthright. He's the one that is going to rule over all of them according to the Father. And now God has stated that clearly. And even the Father is not sure what to do with it. And the Father's response of hiding these things in his heart brings to mind Mary when she heard, or he kept them in his mind, um, Mary when she heard the prophecy of who Jesus was. Had to be terribly troubling for her. And at the same time, she had to reflect on it that maybe this is what will take place. And trying to understand and comprehend how all that works about. The prophecies of God, you need to understand, are not easy to swallow. And they're not something that are, are uh, necessarily clear and evident. Even though Joseph was promised the, the leadership of the family, receiving this, this beautiful cloak and, and being the one who is the son of the wife that Jacob loved and, and being treated as a firstborn and having that special position of being born in in his father's old age. We talked about that last time. All those things are true of Joseph, but even with that, it's just hard to believe that this number 11 out of 12 boys is going to be the one that will lead all of them, including his own parents. It just seems incongruent, and unbelief falls on them. And don't think for one second that unbelief doesn't fall on you just as easily. All of you are susceptible. I am susceptible to unbelief of what God has to say to me when he says, don't do that because it will not bring you happiness in the end. And I'm like, well, I think it might. At least it will for the next 30, 40 minutes. Or at least it will for the time that I have this thing that I know I shouldn't buy. Or I have this opportunity or this uh, place I can go and enjoy myself. And the joy of that only lasts a short while. And sure enough, God is correct. I was wrong. So don't think for one second that, that this is an odd occurrence that the people of God, that we ignored what God says and what he promises. And that we don't necessarily appreciate those who bring us that word. So let's look at verse 12 then, 12 through 18. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. A man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have moved from here for I heard them. Say, let's, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So we have this picture of Joseph wandering around the countryside at the behest of his father to try and find the, the brothers, find these, these people. And, and again, the imagery here is that he's looking for his flock. He's trying to find his flock. And again, jumping forward, the imagery here is, 
is God similar to God sending his son to find his people, go to his own people. Certainly there's foreshadowing going on here that shouldn't be lost. And the brothers being wandering around in the wilderness here are being compared to the flock as it wanders itself. And and there's even a connection. I don't think I'm being too crazy with this because that's what Jacob, that's what Israel has sent him to do is to check on his brothers and the welfare of the flock. Those things are connected there in verse 14, and I think our minds should connect to that as well. So Joseph went after his brothers and he finds them. Not good for Joseph to find them, apparently. So verse 18, when they saw him at a distance, when the brothers saw him at a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. So what were his dreams? His dreams were you're all going to, including mom and dad, are going to bow down and to me. I'm going to be over you in authority. And to put a stop to that, and therefore one of them would ascend to the preeminent position, They plotted to kill him. It's the parable Jesus told. What is interesting is Jesus spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand. And it's like, well, why can't they understand? Go back to Genesis 37. Because their their hearts were hardened without God. You're just not going to understand. Again, this is the natural response we have to the word of God without God working in our hearts. So the plan here is to kill him and throw away the body in a cistern. Get rid of him. And let's just tell, tell dad that he died. A wild beast got him. They don't want the dream. They don't want the dreamer. They want these things gone. Because their plan and their actions are not in line with what God has prophesied to them is going to take place. They think they can thwart it. They don't think they have to honor what's expected of them and what God has planned for them. And again, your mind jumps back to Genesis 4, 3 through 9. So the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought the firstlings of the flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will it not will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We've got nowhere in Genesis as far as the heart of man. It has not changed. From Genesis 4 to Genesis 37, History is going to repeat itself here. We have brothers who are not happy with what God, the situation God has put them in, who are not happy that what they do is not good enough to please their father. And yet here Joseph is pleasing and their response is to kill, is to murder him. So verse 21 and 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 again, not only murdering the dreamer, but also to get rid of the dreams at the end of there, verse 20. Let us see what become of his dreams. His dreams can't take place if we kill him off. The plan of God won't be completed if we kill off this one through whom the plan of God is set to be completed in. It's not just the dreams or the the, the dreamer, it's the dream also that they are rebelling against. Then we have Reuben. Now, when did we last hear from Reuben? You remember what Reuben? What's that? Yes. Yes. He's the one. Is he the one? Yeah, he's the one. Um, Bilha. So the last time we heard about Reuben is Reuben 
slept with his father's, one of his father's wives. He slept with Billa. Wouldn't you know that? Comes back. Reuben then, not in a good relationship with his father, clearly, probably an outcast of at least two of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah. Um, and generally speaking, all the brothers probably had firm disregard for, for him in spite of his preeminence in, among the brothers. Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. And we're finding out later that he had a plan to save Joseph. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Good. Reuben maybe knew of Genesis 4. This would be bad, guys. Let's not do this. Put him into this pit, this into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him with the idea that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. The motivation here that Reuben has is a love for his father, a care for his father, uh, understanding what this will do to his father. Reuben, Reuben knew better than the rest of them what it was to cause pain to his father and didn't want to see it again. Um, take heart in that. That even in failure, you yourself can, in fact, learn from those things. And it appears Reuben has. It gives you a, a warm feeling about who Reuben is and in spite of the evil that he perpetrated against his family as a whole, here's one who's learned from it and wants to make things right. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. They stripped him of the, the symbol that was not only the love of his father, but his position above them. And that's the first thing they stripped him of. And they took him and threw him in the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. So the, the picture here, just, just to take you, is uh, Joseph has traveled for days, looking for his brothers, searching through the wilderness. They come, He sees them in the distance. He goes, found him. This is awesome. Because it's sure a pain in the rear when they wander around like this trying to find them. And I meet random people that kind of point me on the way. And finally, I found them. I'm doing what my father asked me to do. It's harder than I planned, but I've done it. Um, he must have been excited. He must have been thrilled that, hey, I found them. I know they don't like me, but how bad could this go? I'm just going to check on them. I'm going to get out of there. This is going to be great. Um, mission half, half accomplished. And his brothers are looking at him. And he's approaching, and, and we see that what's in their heart clearly is to murder and kill and destroy God's plans. So they approach and we, they, they strip him of his cloak and they take him and they throw him down into the cistern, which is empty, which is great. He doesn't have to tread water, but it's also empty, which means he hits the bottom. And he's laying there and this would have been not so, this isn't like 40, 50 feet deep. This is a shallower cistern. This is something that would have had to been dug out and formed and to, to hold water and they're right there by the cistern. So you can imagine Joseph stuck in the bottom of this cistern while his brothers are having dinner up above, talking about him or ignoring him while he's crying out for mercy. The situation is, is, is really rather grave. It's horrendous that this is going on. And, and just if, if you can picture brothers doing this to one another, uh, it just shows how, again, how evil we are capable of being. It should give you sickness in the pit of your stomach. So he's down inside the pit. Uh, there we go. So they sat down to eat a meal. See, they're eating a meal while Joseph is in the pit crying out for mercy. We assume he's crying out for mercy. I assume he is. As they raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. So Judah speaks. Judah says to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? 
Now, now make sure you, you catch that he's not worried about his brother, about killing his brother on its own. It's not like, wait a second, we shouldn't kill our brother. Look at those Ishmaelites. They're all getting along fine. Can't we be better than Ishmaelites? Let's not kill our brother. That's not what's in his mind. His mind is we could make money. If we kill him, he's actually worth something, guys. If we, if we kill him, we lose an opportunity to make a buck. So Judah comes up with this plan. What profit is it, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So maybe maybe he's a little worried about, hey, it's her brother. That whole Cain and Abel story, that didn't work out so well for Cain. But at the same time, the motivation of greed is present now. And his brothers listened to him. The brother's like, yeah, hey, we can make some money. And so the Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit. And sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So plans changed. Willing to make money off the deal. And sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Again, your mind jumps to other people who have been sold for shekels of silver. Who else was sold for shekels of silver? Jesus himself was. An opportunity to make money presented itself. Joseph would be gone forever. Joseph would be a slave for the rest of his life in a foreign country, never to return. They'd never have to deal with him. They'd get what they'd want. They wouldn't have to kill him. And... They wouldn't have to serve him someday. All these things enter their mind and it seems like a really good idea. And so, Joseph then is sold and they brought Joseph into Egypt. For those listening to this again, these are people, the people who for whom this was written and, and recorded for by Moses just came out of Egypt, and now they're getting, okay, hey, we know this story. This matters a lot to them. This is how we came to Egypt. Much the same way if those of you who have looked at genealogy and you find out, oh, this is what brought my family to the United States. Your, your senses perk up and your, your attitude about that person. You're like, what brought them here? How is it that they came to here? What were the circumstances? Now we know, it's, okay, oh, well, this is bad. Um, we, we were sold into Egypt as slaves. From the very beginning, that Joseph himself, I thought Joseph was like a ruler. It turns out he himself was a slave in Egypt, just as we were. And so that connection to Joseph would have been very strong in their minds. And they certainly would have known and understood what it meant to be going to Egypt. And at the same time, they had to be thinking, but God just brought us out of Egypt. So God's hand is in this. And and that's where our minds should go. We should be seeing that that. The hand of God is actually at work in this, this evil plot of the brothers to sell off Joseph to Egypt, to sell him to the Ishmaelites, to take him away and make money off of him and crush their father. So verse 30, or I'm sorry, 29, Reuben returned to the pit. So Reuben apparently has gone off. Check on the sheep, who knows what. He comes back returns and Joseph is not in the pit so he tore his garments remember Reuben's plan was we put Joseph in the pit when they're not looking I get Joseph out I get Joseph back home dad is okay and he comes and Joseph is gone so he tears his garments because he knows what this is going to do to his father he returned to his brothers and said the boy is not there as for me where am I to go look guys dad already doesn't like me for good cause. What am I supposed to do? I cannot go back with all of you guys and tell them Joseph is gone. So they plot, they hatch another plot here. 
They take Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it and see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Shouldn't they have realized what that would do to their father? Here's your kid's clothes. They're covered in blood. Can you tell us, is this it? Knowing full well it is. The hardness of their hearts and their vindictive attitudes blinded them of what they were about to do to their father. I just can't even imagine. Can you imagine your child being injured in such a way that they're never coming home again? And somebody saying, hey, is this, is this their jacket? It looks like their jacket, knowing full well that they've sold them off. It's just the, the depth of their depravity here is, is mind-boggling. And so they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, please examine it and see whether it is your son's tunic. And he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol or the grave in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. I don't think, I don't think Jacob's response to this is crazy. I think the images in his mind when he saw that of what his son must have gone through and what, a, what, a, what happened to him in those last moments of his life, looking at the torn clothes, looking at the blood and imagining the beast, imagining his poor son, Joseph, was just too much for him to bear. I think very natural response. I think all of us would be the same. I, I can't fathom it. And all of his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. Everyone tried to come around him and comfort him as they should, but he refused to be comforted. The very sons who had done this thing, who knew Joseph was still alive, lived the lie. And in dishonesty, comforted their father. Again, the, the depths of their evil just continues. They watch their father mourn until the day he dies is what's going on. He doesn't, as we know the story carries on. But at this point, they're willing to watch their father mourn a son who was killed in a violent, awful way, knowing full well that's not what occurred. for their own gain and for their hatred of their brother. And surely also for hatred of their father who had elevated Joseph. And then in verse 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Verse 36 is the light at the end of this. Verse 36 to those original hearers would have told them that God had a plan. God is working in this because we know that Joseph, whose bones are with us, as they're carrying them to the promised land, whose bones are with us, makes it. He survives in spite of all the evil that takes throughout the first 35 verses of chapter 37, God has a plan. There is a sovereignty of God in what's happening in Joseph's life. So far, we've seen this overarching plan of God working its way forward from Genesis 3, the fall of man, and God is working in spite of everything that man does. God has a plan and he's marching it forward. Now we're seeing God's plan carried out in a very specific way, in a very specific life. You cannot get past that in Genesis. You cannot ignore the sovereignty of God in our own individual lives. As we see it here in Genesis played out. Um, 
that sovereignty of God in people's lives is something we deal with every day. I was uh, abstractly speaking, um, I flew to Texas on Friday to San Antonio and flew back last night. And I'm on a plane and the, the, all the planes were full except for the last trip back, well, the, the two trips on, apparently people don't like to travel on Saturday night on Labor Day weekend. Um, go figure. Uh, so flying back, there were like 22 of us on the plane. And I used to absolutely hate flying because I'm pretty sure I was going to die. Now I hate flying because someone else is in total control of my schedule and the weather. And there's people up there deciding whether or not my plane goes or the next plane goes based on the storm that just rolled through. And they usually decide the other plane goes. And it's just been a mess. I have had some crazy experiences trying to get from one place to another on a plane. And that's the part I really dislike. But Elise will tell you the first time I flew with you, I held her hand and before we took off and I said, it was really nice knowing you. We're going to die now. Okay, it was every time for a long time. But that, and I was comfortable with that. It's like, God's sovereign, I'm going to die. That's all right. We can do this. I have, I have, he has been so gracious to me. I, I, am, I have full assurance of my salvation. I'm going to live in eternity, and that's going to start here in another 15, 20 minutes. Sometimes that's bad. So I was getting on a plane one time and flying to a medical conference, and uh, I pass by, and in first class is a friend I played basketball with and went to high school with, sitting in the first class, and he's going to a conference as well, and he's a uh, uh, investment advisor guy, and who who sold me something really really bad. Does everybody remember what MCI WorldCom was? Okay, I owned a bunch of that. Three months before it went belly up, and I found out that his company owned a bunch of that and offloaded it on people and encouraged them to buy it. So rather than buying, has anyone ever heard of Cisco Systems? Yeah, with a C, Cisco. Yeah, I, that was what I wanted to buy that day. Um, but I didn't. I bought MCI WorldCom instead. And I wasn't, I was a resident and I had some extra money for moonlighting. I was like, I'm going to invest it. And anyway, so I get on, I go and I sit down after I pass. Hi, I won't say his name. Some of you might know who he is. And I walk by and I have a seat and I sit in the plane and I am never more comfortable than I've ever been on a plane because I'm thinking, so when we pile into that mountain, as we're flying over the Rockies, he goes first. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, awful thought, but... I'm not a perfect person. I acknowledge that. Um, it turns out, thank you, honey. Turns out he's proven that I was right about his character time and time again. Um, but so I'm flying back last night, and there's 22 people of us on this on this plane. So it's very it's on a plane that holds over a hundred, and. So very comfortable flight, wonderful flight. We left the, the terminal 30 minutes early and we get in 40 minutes early to Omaha and I'm like, this is awesome. But I thought, okay, if this plane crashes, so I still think about that. If this plane crashes, there's 22 other soul, well, 21 other souls plus the crew of the plane that God has sovereignly controlled all of us to be here and all of the people that these people know and that I know, it'll affect all of them. And God has all of that worked out in his perfect plan. That the the sovereignty of God and understanding and controlling of our individual lives is so detailed and so incredibly intricate, we can't even begin to fathom how he uses these events. Because there are planes that die with hundreds of people on board, or planes that crash and kill, the plane dies too, that crash and and kill hundreds of people at a time. And God is sovereign in all of that. It's all planned by God, and the results of that are planned by God. And the eventual outcome of everything is planned by God. And, And Genesis has been showing us that. It's been all about the seed. The sovereignty is present from the time Cain kills Abel to 
We read about lines of, of people, the Cain's descendants and Seth's descendants and, and the intermarrying that took place there. And then we read about the, and, and that was all about take out the seed. Satan knows it's coming. Satan has a full understanding of that. Let's not allow this to happen. But the sovereignty of God marches on even then. The world becomes so polluted with sin that God destroys it all with a flood except for Noah and his family. God's sovereignty marches on through that. And interestingly enough, we still have one month a year where we celebrate the fact that God will never destroy the earth by a flood again. And there's rainbow flags everywhere. And it's great. That people, are, people are rejoicing in the fact that God is not going to destroy us by a flood again. That's what I think of anyway when I see those. Um, we saw that in the call of Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. The seed's going to come through you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed with you. God, I don't have a son and I'm like a hundred. But God does it. He works through Abraham. He has only one son in his old age. Isaac comes along and Isaac has two sons. And what do the two sons do? They want to, one wants to kill the other. and The other wants to take advantage of the oldest son. And it's a mess. God's sovereign plan marches on. God is able to take the sin we've seen thus far of man and all of our flaws and all of our faults, and he's still able to carry out what his plan is. And God is the only one who is able to do this. He is the only one able to accomplish all of his plans and all of his desires. Even Satan knows this. Satan was told the plan. Satan had been in the throne room of God. And even he knows the power of God. Yet he kicks and screams and fights against God's sovereignty himself and believes he can be God and act appropriately. In Ezekiel 28, there's this picture of Tyre, the king of Tyre. And God is, is telling the king of Tyre, this is how high you were in the world. You believed that you acted as a god, that you sat in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Tyre was this, this city that was made wealthy because it sat on the sea and all the trade came through it. And everything around the world that had any value at the time was connected to Tyre. And, and when Tyre did well, the whole world did well. It's not all that different from the role the United States plays today. When we do well, the world does well, and wealth flows through here, and the amount of wealth we have here is, is absolutely staggering. Especially when you look not only around the world, but you look through history. So here we have the king of Tyre who has built this and has all these riches. And, and um, in verse 6, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, he had this idea that he himself was so great that he himself was like God. And then it is interesting that then a comparison is made between Tyre and Satan himself. In verse 11, there's a transition. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Wait, king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. Satan was. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of the settings and sockets was in you. On that day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So Satan, this is a this is transition from king of Tyre, just like Satan was in that pride that he had. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found on you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I'd cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, 
From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So we have that judgment of Satan that comes. Satan from Genesis 3 on has been working to destroy this promise of God that's coming, knowing full well it's coming. He has been in the presence of God. He was the covering cherub. He was the one that, that, that absorbed the glory of God, you could say, as he stood in heaven. And so he knows that God is sovereign. He knows and understands a greatness of God that I don't know that even in all eternity we're going to have a firm feeling for or a firm grasp of as he did. And yet he fell And yet he strives against the sovereignty of God and strives against God's plans. It's no wonder in Job, there we go. In Job 1, we see. how wrong Satan is about the sovereignty of God. We have this introduction of this character in Job from 1 through 5 of the blessing that God has given Job because Job is a blameless, upright, God-fearing man. And the, the temptation is to believe that all those things, the way you get all those things is you're good. If you do good, God gives you a bunch of stuff. Right? Isn't that what all of Job's friends come and tell him over and over again? Look, Job, you must have sinned because bad things happen to you. If you do good, good things happen to you and you get stuff. You control the blessings of God. You control God's sovereignty in your own life. But Job doesn't control the sovereignty of God in his own life. Because Job did do what was right. Job was so interested in fulfilling God's righteousness, in fulfilling all he had to do to keep good with God, that he would daily make sacrifices because maybe his sons had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Maybe they did it and I didn't even hear it. And I need to be sure that we're right with God. So that's the type of man that Job was. And we know what happens to Job. But Satan here is is no better. In verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where did you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, for moaning about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, God set Satan up here. Have you considered my servant Job, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil? Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his, you have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased in the land, but put forth your hand now and touch all he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only you do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So what does Satan believe about how the sovereignty of God works in man's lives? Well, God manipulates people and makes them act the way he wants them to act by bringing good and bad into their lives and and to the point where Satan believes, I can do that too. I can make people react to the way circumstances work in their lives to carry out my plan and I can accomplish what I want. We certainly see that when he causes, gives the thoughts to people to kill their brother because they don't like the prophecy they gave or because their dad likes them too much. We saw that with Cain and Abel. Sin is certainly an inside job. We ourselves allow those thoughts to then fester and become action. Thus the warning to Cain, don't let sin control you. It's desires to control you. Don't let that happen. But Satan believes he can also control circumstances in people's lives to produce what they want. And God is teaching Satan a valuable lesson and, and by way of doing so teaches us, I am sovereign over what takes place with my people. And I am the only one who can control the circumstances to achieve the outcome that I have in store for those people. And so we see as way of introduction here in this plot against Joseph, in this plot to, again, 
take you back to the beginning of the chapter, the whole thing that brings this about is the fact that God has given Joseph a prophecy of what his plan is with his people and his people are rebelling against God here. Joseph is taking the, the temporal blunt, the, 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 the impact of their hatred is being felt by Joseph first and foremost in this world and in the, the physical world, but it's an attack on God and his sovereignty himself. But understand that, that just as in Joseph's life, we're going to find that God sovereignly is working out these things through pain and suffering. Not only was Jacob separated from his son, but Joseph is separated from his father. Joseph understands that what his father is going to think and, and the impact that his being gone. Joseph saw what happened when Reuben offended in such a great way his father. He knows his father's heart. So Joseph is feeling all of this pain, absolutely, but he's feeling all this pain as God is working out the means by which his people will be saved from famine and will grow into a mighty nation. That growth into a mighty nation takes place in Egypt. A people who are small in number, who are, are a ragtag group of brothers with only one having any redeeming qualities about him that we've seen thus far are going to become the people of God, the nation of God, and God is sovereign. Just as in your own life, God is sovereignly working through things to accomplish them for him good. Not even Satan himself with the knowledge and understanding and the history he has and his seeing God for who he is and watching mankind for millennia can accomplish what God can through his sovereign power. It is completely and totally outside of our understanding and it will always be, but God is sovereign. And then we're going to see as we march forward the life of Joseph, how this carries out. But of course we have to stop and take note of Judah and Tamar next time, which is again, God's the one who uses these things for his sovereignty. And I think that's why that story is going to be there. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you're a sovereign God and, and that you control the entire universe and our daily activities and everything that we see and experience and even the choices we make somehow work into your sovereign plan for us, Lord. A plan that you have made from the foundation of the world for surely you wouldn't have planned things haphazardly when from the foundation of the world you planned for your son to come to earth to demonstrate his own obedience to the Father, to demonstrate his own mercy and grace, and to display for all eternity the glory of such an awesome God who could lower himself so low and be so humbled and yet still be victorious, Lord. That If you plan that and are sovereignly in control of that, our own lives, Lord, are surely, surely in your hands, Lord. Pray that you would comfort us with your sovereignty, that you would cause us to be fearful and in a, in a respectful way, but also, Lord, in just an understanding way when we sin, that we understand, Lord, that those things are still going to be used by you to accomplish your will. We don't thwart you, Lord but that we also will be very responsible for them. Pray that you'd give us peace in these things that are so hard to understand. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.